nostalgia fans, welcome to this special bonus episode of Celebrity Catch-Up, Life After That Thing I Did, where I've picked out some of my memorable moments from season three. If you've stumbled on the podcast for the first time, I'm Genevieve and I've had another set of brilliantly lovely guests join me this past series to reminisce and talk about their lives after that thing they did. I'll kick things off with a bit of a 90s pop music fest, beginning with Steps legends Lisa Scott Lee and H, followed by Bad Boys of Pop, Scott, Sean and Richie from Five, and then Saturday Night's Wigfield, who all talked about their early days and the times they got into a spot of trouble. So uh, let's rewind almost 25 years ago now before 15 million album sales, 14 consecutive top five hits and a million concert ticket sales. And you two were in the original Steps. I say original when Steps was also made up of Derek, Maddie and Mitch. Wow, you're going deep, straight in there. You're going balls deep. Wow. (laughs) Um, And then auditions were held to form the band, as we know and love it. But you were only signed for one song. And I think I read somewhere that you were only earning like £30 a week at the time. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprise but Genevieve you've done your homework what's going on wow that can't be true is that true <laughs> yeah it's it's true. no actually no we were earning 50 pounds a week it was 15 40 of that went on rent, rent and we had 10 pounds a week to live on food I used to buy a bag of potatoes no frills uh tuna flakes and ketchup and I lived on that for I didn't even know how long a year wow <gasps> Oh, yes, because I, I actually lived with H and Lee in the early days, and that's what used to make us. Yeah, because that's all we could afford. <laughs> that's, that's what we had, yeah. So basically, we lived on £10 a week yeah, because know, £40 pounds went on our rent. That's how cheap rent was back then. I know, and that was in London. But, but it's funny because it's almost like, you know, when, when you just said that about um, the original Steps, because we've been Steps, as everyone knows us, for 24 years, you know, it, it, it almost surprises me. It comes as a surprise again when you say that because it was such a long time ago. And basically, as you rightly said, you know, there, there, there were five um, members of Steps originally, myself and HR, uh, the original two members. And we did go through a different creative process with three other people. But it just it just wasn't to be. And we were we were very much, we would embrace pop music. You know, me and H are massive pop fans anyway. And um, I think, you know, they, they, they had different tastes in, in music. Um, and so we actually re-auditioned. And that's when we discovered and we found Claire, Faye and Lee. And we became the steps as everybody knows us today. So um, I don't even know the timing, you know, that original steps. We weren't, we, we weren't together for very long. And obviously... Now we've gone on and it, it was it, it was the right people, it was the right fit, the right personalities, you know, the, the right voices. And we've we blended together to become steps as, as you know us today. Um, Simon Cowell wanted a band with Edge and I mean, he definitely got it because I remember at the time there were headlines about you burning down a hotel or you'd been in fights. But Simon... It was an accident. Yeah, can we just say we didn't burn down a hotel that a fire began by accident that we were accidentally responsible for. But the press span it as something that you had done to create this or perpetuate the bad boy image, I guess. Simon Cowell loved it. Anytime there was, like, I remember the, the, the time when the fire happened in Ireland. I remember being nervous thinking, oh my God, Simon Cowell's going to go like mental, he's going to go ballistic. And he, he literally went, what are you worried about? It's that you can't buy that sort of press, guys. It's amazing. <laughs> um, and, um, and, and we remember going, oh, wow, okay. So 
there's no problem here. Just do what you like. Mm. Start fires, start fights. It's fine. It's all good. <laughs> Lisa, I'm not sure if you've blanked or blurred this out of your memory, but you were a bit of a bad girl because you were cautioned by police in Dublin. She still is. Yeah, that, nothing's changed. I, I've still got... Um, I've still got, yeah, fire in uh, fire inside. Still well, got a record. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't have a record. For, for the record, I don't have a record. But, yeah, <laughs> look, you know, I, I am, I'm fun, I'm fun living. Um, and that's, you know, that's why I was always known as, as, as party steps. And I'm going to enjoy this experience. And I've, I've been enjoying it from, from day one and will continue to, you know, make the most out, out of life. And, and I think we, we work hard and, you know, you have to, enjoy the you know the downtime and so oh gosh so ba- basically we were in Ireland we were there for the MTV awards and we'd been to the awards it was all televised and then mean steps we got jumped on the tour bus with our record company I remember and I you know we were young we were in our 20s and we were like you say we were touring the world and just having all these incredible experiences and for some reason we, we had this thing where every time we went to a new country everyone would say right Lisa you know we're in a new country you got to moon so we had, <laughs> we had this thing where I'd moon all over the world and we have we happened to be in it was Dublin wasn't it I believe yeah it, it was, was Dublin. Island, yeah. um and uh yeah so you know first time there so right come on Lisa you know you know what 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 we do so I am um, quick cheeky little moon out, out of the tour bus window and it was an undercover police car. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> and this siren, yeah, this this man reached out, put put a siren on top of the car, and pulled us over and fog marched on onto the tour bus. Who was that? Whose bottom was that? <laughs> <laughs> Did they do a lineup? <laughs> yeah, a bottom a bottom lineup. So I like sank in my seat, um, and I had to own up because you know I, I well I, that's that's the kind of person I am. I didn't want hate or anyone else taking the taking the blame. So yeah, I said it. It was me. H, you should have been chivalrous and taken the blame. <laughs> Everyone's seen my arse anyways. But... <laughs> uh, and so, and so the, yeah, they, um, they, you know, they took me off the tour bus with my record company, the label, the boss. And I was so, Tina, do you remember her, H? Yeah, I do. So yeah. I was mortified because I was like, oh God, am I going to, you know, get fired? Am I going to get, get the sack from steps? Um, and they basically cautioned me um, and they said I had a nice bottom. <laughs> Fine. that's all right then <laughs> yeah so yeah I, I've, I've grown out of that phase you'll be glad to hear <laughs> you also famously dethroned wet 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 from the number one spot <laughs> well they said they were happy <laughs> they were number one forever here for 15 weeks with that song from four winnings and a funeral love is all around i mean that that's an achievement in itself <laughs> well they have said that they were tired of it anyway so I, I i remember i just they asked me about it and i just said i made them dry 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 <laughs> <laughs> And you mentioned the dance routine a little bit earlier, um, the famous dance routine that everyone did to the song. And I remember doing it myself at a few school discos, but you didn't actually, obviously you said you didn't actually create it. It was an, a, like an aerobics instructor that did it. And you never actually danced it yourself on stage ever. I have danced it for a photo session because they asked me, that was in Spain. I did some, you know, those very cheesy teen magazines and stuff. And they uh, they wanted me to do the dance routine and I just, I did it even though I didn't, because I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be like too foolish. You know, I wanted to be mm. taken serious as well. I didn't want to be like, um, 
I didn't want to be just in and out. You know, I wanted to be taken serious for what I was doing and for my work. So, but I did that photo session and I've done the routine on TikTok as well. But what happened was uh, the Macarena, they stole the dance, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, it's very similar. It's very similar. <laughs> but what they did was they were really smart about it because they did the dance in the video. The two old blokes didn't, but the girl did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, the old blokes, they didn't do the dance. <laughs> okay, so who didn't love Jurassic Park when it was released? Ariana Richards, who played Lex in the film, joined me to talk about making the movie with Steven Spielberg and how it changed her life after. Let's talk about your first days on set and meeting the animatronic dinosaurs for the first time. That must have been fantastic as a kid to see these full-size breathing creatures come to life in front of you compared to having a tennis ball on a stick that people usually have to act to these days. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny, but uh, the dinosaurs were actually in the flesh fully about 80% of the time while we were filming. So I was so lucky because as a kid, talk about a magical type of movie set to just walk onto and you never knew what you were going to find that day, what kind of dinosaur they would have created, what kind of incredible jungle set. It, it was like magic. So I get on set, I get to see these creatures. And uh, of course, I have to glom onto all the, the people like Stan Winston, who was absolutely a legend, learn from them and see how the creatures work. I was fascinated. Stan was so patient with me in between scenes. He would let me sit with him and his guys and, and just explain to me which guy was moving the toe and which guy was moving the iris and uh, of this T-Rex. It was really fun. I guess acting isn't that hard when you have a life-size T-Rex attacking you in a Jeep. You know, it made it easier. It definitely did. Though I, I have to always remember that, that Stephen really um, uh, made me laugh. <laughs> he came over to the Jeep once just in between filming as I was doing the scenes where I was um, holding the flashlight and the T-Rex was close by and, and Stephen comes over just to say hi. And, and he says, you know, Ariana, I've been wondering something. So, so how do you get to those, those depths of, of terror that I see you reaching emotionally? I mean, what are you drawing from at your age? Were you scared by a clown when you were three? And, <laughs> and then he said, wait, 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 don't tell me. I don't want to know. Is that traumatic? Right. <laughs> While I was watching um, some YouTube clips of you, I noticed many comments where people were saying that you were their first crush when they were growing up. But as a young female teen then, how did you deal with all the attention that came with the film? Like doing all the press interviews, photo shoots, fans, being, being someone's first crush, all that kind of stuff. You know, it was weird actually as a young person, if you can imagine just living your life, it was already an exciting, unusual life. I mean, hey, I was growing up doing movies and traveling all over the place. It was so exciting and fun. But then all of a sudden being catapulted into international celebrity overnight as a young teen, I mean, that was crazy. I mean, I, I couldn't go anywhere, just be anymore, just be a person. You, you go to a cafe, you try to sit down with your friends or your family and, and the entire cafe is filled up with a line of people who want to say hi to you and get your autograph. You can't exactly just live the normal way that you did before. But at the same time, it, um, it opens up a lot of opportunities and 
And that's great too. I had such a fun time traveling. And we talk about traveling all over the world, even for, for Jurassic in particular, there were so many opportunities to do that. Like the London premiere, for example, I have such fond memories of that. Wow. Getting to be there with the cast, Stephen telling me that, okay, Ariana, I think you're the one that's going to be able to pull this off. You should be the one who hands the flowers to Princess Diana. Well, yeah, because it was the British film premiere was one of our royal premieres and, and they're quite rare. We don't have very many royal premieres and Princess Diana was the royal that attended your, your premiere and you, you, you presented her with flowers. So what do, you, what do you remember about that encounter and what did you talk about? Oh, it was so special for me. I was really excited because uh, I got to be the one to hold the bouquet and hand it to her and, and curtsy and greet her properly and, and meet meet Princess Di. But I just remember her being so, so gracious and, and so warm and just very regal and beautiful and uh, talking about... Um, how she was so looking forward to her, her boys seeing the, the movie eventually. And it was really something. And then uh, they, of course, as luck would have it, they placed me right behind her during the show of the film. And I got to watch her reactions to the movie, which was really something because watching Princess Di see the movie was, was different than, than the rest of, of the group of people. Because you look at the rest of, of the people in the, in the seats and a lot of people were reacting. I mean, they would, get startled they would leap in their chairs they they would cower down they would hide their faces at times and and she was so untouchable it was incredible she just she was so so stately the whole time she was experiencing the movie because I, I watched right there and and uh and that really told me you know what this woman is made of steel one of the topics I love talking about with my guests is fashion, specifically what they were wearing in the 80s and 90s. Curtis Steigers had a fabulous head of long hair in the 90s, which was the subject of much talk at the time. And in our chat, he told me why he decided to cut it off. Yaz also told me of the battle she had over her styling and the ever colorful Mr. Motivator revealed a secret about his most famous accessory. You mentioned the hair. Um, which contributed to you being somewhat a sex symbol at the time. Uh, and I have to say, you had a pretty damn good head of hair. I mean, I've got long hair, but I'm envious looking at yours from back then. It looks like it was very high maintenance, maybe. I don't know. It was in such good condition. Well, I, I have always had, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky to say I've always had a lot of hair. It's just, it's, it, it's hanging in there. It's still there. It's, it's quite white and gray um, nowadays, but back then, you know, it, it's always been thick. Um, that made it difficult. I mean, I only had long hair for about four years. It was, I'd moved to, I had moved to New York City when I was uh, 21 or so, and I couldn't really afford to get a good haircut anymore. And so I just kind of let it grow and then it got bushier and longer. And I thought, well, I'll keep going. You know, you experiment with those kind of things, uh, especially when you're, you know, when you're young. And and suddenly I had long hair. That was fine. I was playing gigs. I got a record deal. They took that photo. And that photo is something I will never live down. That photo of me on the cover of my first album with orange skin because they had this sort of yellow or yellow skin because they had this yellowish light, which was cool back then, I guess. And my hair looked a little bit lighter because of that yellowish light. And so people still say, oh, why aren't you blonde anymore? I was never blonde. It was it was lights, for God's sake. Come on. Um, and, and as soon as I got off of the 
the road. Um, at the end of 92, I, I came off of the road uh, having toured for a year and a half behind my first album. And in early 93, I chopped off all my hair. I just, it was, it drove me crazy. It was such a pain, especially after a gig. You know, I'd come off stage, I'd be soaking wet, get on a tour bus, and I'd have to spend 15 minutes blow drying my hair just so that I wouldn't catch cold, you know, so I wouldn't get sick uh, sitting on a bus with air conditioning. So uh, um, it was, it was so nice to cut it off. Uh, and people still say, where's your hair? And I say, I have no idea. It was 30 years ago. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) But also, you know, the first time someone said, oh, he's, you know, he's Michael Bolton Jr. I I thought, oh God, I got to get, I got to cut my hair as soon as possible. And I just, uh, I just was, uh, I I didn't want to be compared to anyone else. And, and then to have someone compare me to somebody just because of my hair, that, that made me crazy. Was it kind of, I guess, almost like a blessing and a curse, your hair? Because on the one hand, it's part of your image, you know, to start off with. But on the other, there must have been this time where you feel like you can't cut it because people identify you with it. I'm kind of thinking like Jennifer Aniston in Friends with her Rachel haircut and then everything became about her hair. Yeah. Well, it certainly certainly got talked about a lot. I have to say that was again, one of the reasons that I cut it off because I just didn't, I didn't want it to be about how I looked. I never, it was never about an image or a, you know, I, I never really set out to be that, you know, a sex symbol or a, or, or, you know, a, a fashion plate or whatever, or somebody with long hair. I just, that's just how I looked. And, you know, I, I put it together well enough to where, you know, I looked better than the people in the audience. That was the idea. Someone, someone told me when I was young, I, I heard someone say, uh, you know, here's a, here's a, a, a good rule for show business always look at least a little better than the people in the audience so you know you dress up a little bit more um but at, at a certain point it was time to let it go and uh, um you know maybe that was the only reason i was famous was because of my hair but uh, i oh. i don't think i don't think so i think uh, you know i i made some choices when i cut my hair to continue to evolve and to change as a musician i've always tried to learn new things every year i try to make a record that sounds different than the last one mm-hmm. and uh, um i guess in that regard cutting my hair was a was a, a step in changing but i never thought like oh i'm going to reinvent myself like Madonna does. She she basically changes her clothes and suddenly she's reinvented herself. I say, like, well, no, you still sound like <laughs> you still sound like Madonna. You just changed your clothes. <laughs> what was more difficult, but most of the arguments that I would have would be about imagery. Um, to be honest, I was not going to be the push-up bra, you know, lingerie type artist. Um, you know, so we had a lot of discussions with stylists coming in and, and sh- literally holding up something that looked like a lingerie department. And I said, you've got to be kidding. This message and that outfit, you really have not got who I am at all. So let's talk fashion then, because you were very much a double <laughs> denim wearer with lots of badges, oh dear. embellishments, rara skirts, crop jackets and tops, oh which my. are following the fucking fashion now. Um, Gosh, yeah. But, but did you have much involvement in your styling? Because you did actually do a bit of styling for George Michael and yeah. Wham before you hit the charts. Yeah, let me apologise now, okay, <laughs> <laughs> for some of that stuff. I did think I was the bee's knees, I confess. Um I'm a creative. I've always been into fashion and style to some degree. And remember then, you know, artists were, they had albums. So you had album covers to be creative about as well. It's so different now with CDs and not even CDs anymore, really. So 
I was pouring all that creative energy in trying to find myself, trying to find my identity and how I looked and in how I expressed myself. Sorry if this is a personal question, but what was in your ubiquitous bum bag or fanny pack again for our US friends? That's not a personal question. You know what? I've been asked that so many times. They say necessity is the mother of invention. Now, traditionally, when you're wearing a mic pack, and also if you have the them speaking to you in your ear and telling you, giving you a countdown when to come off screen, all those packs have to go in your back. So you've got your mic and you've also got the IFB in your back. And if I had to go on the floor to do some exercise, it felt uncomfortable. So I was thinking one day, what do I do to remedy this? And how can I make it so that it becomes part of what I was wearing? That's how the bum bag was born because literally it holds, it holds my mic and it holds my feedback. And uh, we have leads that come out the back that go behind in my unitard. And then no one knows I'm wearing a mic. And everyone's asked over the years, what is it? There it is. After charming audiences as a lovable child actor, Sean Maguire quickly graduated to teen heartthrob starring in British soap opera EastEnders with hard-hitting storylines. But the pin-up status wasn't for him and he explained why he quit the soap and eventually left England to pursue his now successful Hollywood career. And so you graduated from Grange Hill to the studio next door and joined EastEnders in 1993 as Aidan Brosnan, the Irish apprentice footballer for mm-hmm. Walford FC yeah. and you only appeared in 63 episodes over the year that you were in EastEnders. Is that how many it was? I didn't know. Yeah, that. but again, the storylines you were given, you were in a coma after taking ecstasy, you were homeless, right. had depression, and in classic EastEnders fashion, because no one can have a happy Christmas ever, Nope. Aidan attempted suicide on Christmas Day. Well, actually, that was the plan. If memory serves, the plan was that I was going to commit suicide and again, Aiden seemed to be a character that, for whatever reason, people seemed to like. And I, I got quite a lot of letters from young people, um, especially young people that were having a tough time. And when they told me that the character was going to commit suicide, I said to them, please don't. I, I'm, I, I'm happy to leave in any fashion you want, but don't have him commit suicide because inevitably there are suicides around Christmas. Sadly, sometimes they're young people. And I know that the tabloids will say it's a copycat death and that they copied me or something, or that's possible. Mm. And I couldn't deal with that. My conscience couldn't deal with that. I, I, that would break me if I felt in any way responsible for something like that. And I said, please find another way. I'm not telling you how to run your show, but please don't, don't do that. Don't do that on Christmas Day. It'll ruin the country's Christmas, blah, 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 blah. And they were like, nope, that's what we're doing. And I was like, okay, well, I've voiced my opinion. And then as luck, bad luck would have it. I broke my leg uh, a week or two later in a, I was doing this stupid motorcycle thing that I shouldn't have been doing. Broke my leg very, very badly. Um, Very nearly killed myself. Very nearly actually died in the motorcycle accident had I hit the wall differently. If I'd hit it with my head, I'd be dead for sure because I hit the wall at about 50 miles an hour. And um, and because I broke my leg, I couldn't walk. And because I couldn't walk, I couldn't jump off a building. Uh. So um, it, it, fate sort of stepped in. And then uh, Aiden just went off back to Ireland or something, I think. I can't remember. Um, but so I was very glad that um, that storyline didn't end up the way that it was supposed to go because I just, I just thought inevitably something bad will happen out of this. So, yeah, fate had a hand in that one. Um, I wasn't happy about breaking my leg, but I was very happy that I, uh, I didn't bum out the entire country by committing suicide on Christmas Day. I mean, come on, EastEnders. <laughs> I mean, 
teenage suicide on Christmas Day. Hey, happy Christmas, everybody. But that, that's EastEnders. I think at the time you received the most coverage and fan mail in EastEnders history, as there hadn't really been a teen heartthrob on the show before. I mean, that, that Christmas Day episode was watched by 23 million people. Wow. Um, but you weren't too comfortable with that pinup status that you acquired. Did that have anything to do with your decision to leave the show after only a year? I mean, I, I just became aware very quickly that, don't get me wrong, it's very flattering to receive fan mail and it's flattering to to be a, a pin-up or have people have the, your poster on the wall. I'm not saying that it's not. It, it is nice. It's very, very flattering. But I realised very early on, I was looking at actors that I loved, people that I admired, and I saw how quickly people that were in that sort of position shied away from that because once you put yourself out there as just that idol that then you immediately start the egg timer on your shelf life and if it's just about being cute and pretty you know looks fade and and you're no longer that you know you're the hot thing of the moment and then it's somebody else and if you put all your eggs in that basket inevitably that time will come to an end and somebody else will be in your position and I my dad again was very good at sort of saying don't don't chase after that there's that's this kind of a, a bit of a an oasis a bit of a mirage Try to find the roles where you're being pushed as an actor. Try to grow as an actor. Just don't put too much stock in that. Uh, so I went off and became a pop star, <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, something that I'll, I'll get to in a minute. But, you know, I, I, I just realized that I, um, also celebrity is something that one may seek until you get it. Like you said, something like 23 million people are watching the show. There's 60-odd million people in the UK. So that means sort of like one in three recognize you. And I found that level of, I'm not saying being famous, it's different than being famous. Just being recognizable is not what it, you think it's going to be. I was hit in the face so many times. Uh, going on holiday with my friends led to so many altercations and, and terrible moments. And it just, it just made life so much harder than it did make it easier or cool that I realized, oh, this is definitely, celebrity is not for me. I just wanted to just be an actor. Uh, and, and I take whatever fame that comes with that, but it, I didn't want to be famous for fame's sake. And I didn't want to just be turning up at premieres and be in the newspaper and stuff. Because also, you know, the British public, like any public, after a while they go, oh God, not this guy again. And, and with the pop thing, I found that I was getting to the point where I was too... I was too overexposed and, and inevitably people get sick of you. And the job of an actor is to pop up, do something great and then disappear. Let them miss you. Um, and I just got to a point where I was too everywhere at once and even I was getting sick of myself. So that's why when the, the chance to, you know, after the music thing, um, when the opportunity came to go to America... Um, I thought it'd be good. I thought, you know, maybe I'll try America for a few years and then I'll come back and maybe people won't be so bored of me. But, you know, again, fate had uh, other plans. Sean's negative experience of fame was a common theme a lot of my guests shared, along with the feeling that show business wasn't really what they expected. Here's Five and Yaz again sharing their experiences and talking about how they struggled. From the outside, being in a successful band seems like you're living the dream and you've got it made but how much did you underestimate how much hard work it was going to be because I imagine some parents are looking at their 16 17 year olds right now going yeah they couldn't hack that 
I could say I was 15 years old, so I had no idea about the real world at all. I mean, I went from literally sitting in my bedroom, writing songs at my keyboard, singing to myself. And I thought getting in the music business was just literally taking your keyboard, putting it on a stage and having a bigger crowd. And, but I, I never actually acknowledged that you had to promote a record or that you had to do interviews. Or you had to, I know it sounds ridiculous, but I was just so naive. That's when you were 15. I, I just, all I thought, you go in the music business, you just do music. I didn't think of any of what we're doing and um, it, was, it was quite a shock. How about you, Scott and Richie? Were, were, were you prepared for how much work it was going to be? No. Because you kind of came through kind of stage school kind of route, weren't you? So, so you, yeah, were, you I might did. have been I, a bit I, more prepared. I, didn't, I don't think you can ever know how, how demanding it's going to be and, how, and the hours that you're going to put in. Like You could have a rough idea, but let me tell you, that rough idea will soon vanish because we were worked like dogs. And I do mean like dogs. I mean, we were you'd get an hour's kip if you were lucky and you'd, you wouldn't know, you'd wake up, you wouldn't know what country you were in, let alone what hotel room you were in. You wouldn't, you'd have to look out of the window to try and like hopefully see something that represented that country, you know, like, a, a, you know, a landmark. A roadside yeah. to see what continent you were on. Like, so if you saw sort of Chinese or Korean stuff, you'd be like, okay, I'm, I'm in Asia. Yeah, it was, it really was. <laughs> It's true that it sounds crazy. But no, it is true, genuinely, because we were so global, globe hopping so much. It was, yeah, it was. And it's not a nice feeling. It's a very panicky feeling when you don't know what continent you're on when you first wake up. <laughs> <laughs> like Sean sort of touched on earlier, there was so much other stuff that you didn't think you had to do. You thought you'd go on stage, do a bunch of performances and kind of that's been in the music industry. But there was other stuff that was sort of like, oh, far more of your time was spent doing photo shoots and, and this and that, which sounds cool, but, you know, it, it just, it's very tiring. With all, a couple of that, with all the travelling, all the fans, all the question asking and everything after 18 hours days for two years. But we literally didn't get, we did, it sounds like we're just sort of, for somebody listening to this to probably think, what is wrong with these guys? Like, you know what I mean? I'm, not, I'm working nine to five, how can they not appreciate it? But the thing is, it's not that, it's just literally we did not have one day. I think I remember going home for Christmas, mm. Christmas Day, and like, that was literally it. They did not give us one day off. They didn't even give us an hour off, let alone a day. So and then you appeared on Wogan, uh, performing the, the only way it's up to, I think it's like 15 million homes, and almost overnight it propelled you to number one for five weeks. So it must have mm. been a whirlwind that just seemed unreal. It was extraordinary, fast and furious, as they say. Just such an unknown area as well to me, fame. It's so demanding of, for attention and you so easy to get swept up in trying to fit in to um, meet that expectation and the demands of fans um, and all the chart positions that are necessary to sustain where you've got to to be and all those sorts of influences I found that um, quite overwhelming but on the other hand I was given such opportunity to meet some of my um, heroes and heroines of the music industry and be in the same room with them um, and as you said earlier when we were chatting and established that we're all the same we all have the same insecurities and you know I think inherently 
artists tend to be have a propensity to be sensitive or maybe a bit insecure or needy. I don't know. I certainly certainly saw those things in myself. And so there's a lot going on. There's a lot of layers um, going on in fame, um, which I personally, I kind of slapped this smile on my face and discovered that people would kind of leave me alone a little bit because I looked very particularly happy and enjoying. And I was enjoying a large, huge, large part of it. But there was always something a little bit um, unnerving and I couldn't figure out what that was. I actually thought I have ticked the boxes and, you know, I'm in a position of success or what perhaps the world would call success. And uh, I'm not um, sensing this balance I thought I'd have or this deep satisfaction. I don't know what. Just a whole that, you know, music, which, which really had become my idol. I worship music and I found solace in music and hope in music. Even there were times when I was just felt very lonely or um, just um, an inability to please people, I think. I think he became a people pleaser quite young in life. And that just kind of escalated it um, to a higher degree. Once again in this series, my guests have been incredibly open and honest in sharing stories from difficult times in their lives. Next up, here's Wigfield, Lisa Scott Lee and Mr Motivator. Um, Speaking a little bit about life, um, you haven't really spoken much about it before, but you were diagnosed with breast cancer in 2014 and had surgery and radiotherapy. Mm -hmm. I had a breast cancer scare myself a couple of years ago. um, And in the two weeks between first seeing my doctor and then going to the hospital and seeing the specialist, I made a lot of life decisions and changes. Um, And thankfully, I'm fine now. But it must have been a very difficult time for you. How did you cope and get through it? Well, before I was diagnosed, I went to have, uh, I don't know what you call it, where they put a needle in and to suck out. Like a biopsy. Yeah, a biopsy. And I was staying in London at that time. So I flew back to London and I was supposed to get an email, but I didn't get an email. So I thought everything's over. I don't know what I thought. So the doctor had actually written me an email. It it, it went into spam. (laughs) So I called up the doctor and and he said, do you mind coming in? And I was like, oh dear, oh dear. And um, he said, look, we have to operate straight away. So, you know, this is the time schedule for you for the next few months. And after that, we are going to do, um, we're going to uh, give you radiation for six weeks, which left me completely without any skin on my right breast. It was horrible. And it was kind of a lonely time in my life. And you're right, you kind of start making certain decisions where you are kind of, I think when you're confronted with, I wouldn't say possibility of death because I found it very early, early stages of breast cancer. But you kind of go, well, is this because of the way I've lived? You kind of, I just started thinking about all the possibilities and what I had to change or is milk bad for you because milk is bad for women, for breast cancer. You know, I started making all these things, but I just came out of it on the other side. And I think a little, a little bit humans tend to forget that we're ill (laughs) very quickly like when you have a flu and you kind of go 
oh my God, I'm going to enjoy life so much because having the flu is just the worst. The same thing happened to me with breast cancer. I kind of went, I kind of just went on with my life straight after. Did you have a, a good support network at the time Well, to help you through what, your treatment? I was kind of, because I, I love my own company in a certain way. I would wake up five in the morning and go by car. It took about 40 minutes because I, I was treated in Milan. And I would sit there in the room with other women. And I didn't know, it was a very um, silent time in my life. I, I would spend a lot of time thinking. Um, what I would do also would, I went on my social media. I went. You know, I wanted to tell the world, not that I had been sick, but please go and get tested. Please tell a friend to get tested. Because if you get checked up once in a while, you can actually really beat this easily. So I wanted to, to use my voice for that, you know, it, and that helps me a lot. You know, when, when you can do something for someone else, even if it's just telling them, look, this happened to me, it's okay, you know. I won't dwell on it too much, but of course the band split in 2001. Oh, you're going to dwell on it. Go on. <laughs> when HU and Claire resigned. Um, and previous guests I've spoken to on the podcast, like Anthony Costa from Blue and Chesney Hawks, have commented about how after their band split or they were dropped from their record label, they felt a bit lost afterwards and didn't get any support, especially from their management to help them with, I guess, essentially the feelings of loss that they were experiencing at the time. Was that the same experience for you, Lisa? It was for me because H took the manager. <laughs> <laughs> so when 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 we split, which was um, I always say to H still hurts, still painful. <laughs> get over the bridge and get over it. <laughs> well, I have, and that's why we've got a new album. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, seriously, I think you know it was a very difficult time, and of course, you know we've all talked about it. It was well documented. We've had a TV show. We needed to discuss it in order to to move on, but. Yeah, you know, H and Claire, um, they, they kept the team and the management and the beauty team and everything. So for them, they, they still had that support network. And yeah, I think that's why it was um, super hard for me, Faye and Lee, because yeah, I remember waking up. We, I think we just played Manchester Arena. I remember waking up the next day and the realisation hit me. I'm not in a pop group anymore and I don't have a manager and I don't have a job and I don't know... I, I just, I'm, I, I felt completely lost as well. So I do relate to that. Um, and I felt scared and worried thinking, what, well, what do I do now? Cause, because I wasn't expecting it. So, um, yeah, that, that was a, a very difficult time where I really had to find inner strength, um, and, you know, kind of work through it. And I actually wrote, that's when I wrote my, my solo album. And I went, I went knocking on all the record company doors. I didn't have a manager, um, and I secured, you know, a solo deal. So, and I've got my solo album that my kids love and that, you know, I, I, I can show them and play to them. So I, I think, you know, for me, I kind of worked through it through a creative process, which is, you know, which I'm really proud of actually. But me and H, you know, we, we've had very open and honest talks about this. And I think because H acknowledges that it was um, maybe not, you know, not, done in, in, the, in the best way you know and I and I, I love him dearly you know he's, he's one of my best friends so it, there was a time where we we didn't talk for probably I think it was about two years and I remember it was H's birthday and I 
I really reached out to him and I said, happy birthday, H. Oh, I'm getting emotional. Uh, and I said, um, you, you know, you still make me smile. Um, and so that was it. It kind of, it just got us talking and communicating again and re, you know, reignited our friendship because we, we've always had a super, super close bond, which mm. thankfully, you know, we still enjoy today. Well, <laughs> well, <laughs> scrap, scrap that, scrap that. Here, here's the real story. No, I'm joking. <laughs> well, <laughs> so you had a particularly harrowing incident though while you're in Jamaica, which was when you you experienced an armed home invasion. Yeah, um, yeah. And if it's not too too traumatic to recount, can you yeah. can you talk a little bit about about what happened? Sure. Well, I mean, picture this. You've got some friends up for the weekend. Couple, they'll come up with their two children. Right? And we're all in the kitchen, uh, sitting down, eating and talking and laughing. And I looked over to the left-hand side, and there's a side door. And I noticed that I saw it open, and I saw someone run in. And before I knew it, about eight people ran in. One of them had a gun, rest had knives and machetes and all that kind of stuff. So we're going to be robbed. And the first thing they did when they came in was they actually tied us up and put us on the floor. They did a, what do they call it, with a gun, with one guy that hit him in his head and, and they tied us up on the ground. I'll always remember, which is the most upsetting thing for any father, and he'll tell you this, any male, you don't like feeling helpless. You don't like feeling hopeless, right? You want to be the one that actually, you know, you're the guardian angel of your family. You want to be the one that cocoons everybody and a suit of armor. And so when you're tied up, right, I remember I didn't put my hands together as he wanted. I keep my fingers apart, slightly apart. Um, so that way, when he tied my wrist, I could actually break myself loose without him knowing. So we're down on the floor. And I always remember my daughter saying, Dad, why are these men doing this? But I knew who it was. And I knew that he had brought me. And he was the builder. And I knew it. And the reason why I knew it was because there were certain clues. Number one, I had an underground safe in a little room. It was built into the ground. And he brought over the lid of the safe. But I knew from about a year before when I got rid of him that there was a key missing. So I stopped putting anything in that safe. So he used the key that was missing to open the safe and didn't get anything. So he comes over to me and one guy's flashing a knife in my face and gun man and said, where's all your money and stuff like that. So I said, it's upstairs. So he called my wife, want to take my wife upstairs. I said, no, it's got me. She doesn't know the combination I got. So I went up, my hands are still tied. They undid it, so I had my hands in front, warned me, don't, you know, do anything. So I opened the safe, and they took all the cash out, and there was all our jewellery that we didn't normally wear down, they took it out, right? Some of them have more sentimental value than anything else. So they they got away, and um, and then, you know, I got myself free and loosened everybody out, up and um, traumatic, traumatic. Um, it was more traumatic for everybody else uh, than me, the thing is, one of them, in about about two weeks afterwards, managed to get himself killed. And all thieves do, because eventually you think if you get away with it, one one person, you can get away with it. Another person, one got killed and so on. And we recovered some of the stuff, not the jewelry, but it didn't matter. What was the lesson I learned from it? Number one, we hadn't done our security. We hadn't finished the house and we hadn't built the fence. The dogs weren't out. They were late going out. That's number one. Number two, let people earn your trust before you let them in. And I hadn't really done that, right? You must do that in life because sometimes we're too trusting and the very people we trust can be the people who let us down. And number three is that, and I mentioned it earlier, 
You know, that is really important. If something or someone don't add value to your life, get rid of it. All this jewelry I had and stuff like that, we weren't wearing it. So what joy are we getting out of it? Nothing. So now if I can't wear it, I don't want it. But the, the saving grace of it all is my, I'd had my wife, um, engagement ring. It was made at Hatton Garden through a friend of mine. And I thought we'd lost that. But that wife of mine, she's so clever. She put it in her mouth without anybody knowing. <laughs> so they didn't get it. Sticking with Mr. Motivator, as well as getting the nation fit, he's also been traveling the world as a motivational speaker. And he was dropping so many pearls of wisdom during our chat. Just take a listen to this. This pandemic is no different to some of the pandemics, personal pandemics we're all going to face in our lives. As we get older, the chances are it's going to happen. It could be, it could be the loss of a loved one. It could be an accident you never planned for. It's uh, that job you never get. They all have a beginning point and they all have a middle when you are doing that middle, you're trying to figure out, is it coming to an end or we just get halfway through it? Are we going to get through it? Am I healing okay? Am I going to be all right? I'm really feeling stressed. How do I cope with my stress? What do I do about it? Uh, here we are. are we, they've told me now the lights that the tunnel, I can see it. And just before you get to the light, it gets dark again. That's life. That's life. And so coping with the pandemic is is exactly that. So treat the pandemic as one of the life's lessons. And I always say it in my talk, I say, listen, the difference in school and life is this. In school, you're taught a lesson and then you're given a test. In life, you're given a test which teaches you a lesson. So we've all learned a load of stuff from this last year. I've got loads of takeaways from this last year. But the one thing I know is not important. I don't have to rush out and buy a new T-shirt it wasn't important the last 15 months. The new car wasn't important. That other television set wasn't important. And yes, so what do we do? We spend all our energies out there trying to get that other TV set at the expense of our health. So shame on you if you don't look after yourself. And it's important that we all recognize that we have, we have an ability. We all have this ability. We all have a God-given talent. Every one of us have a talent. It's just that sometimes what we do is we let other people put a, cloth over it so you don't shine through. Don't let that ever happen. Believe in yourself. Don't wait for your ship to come in. Swim out to it. Yeah, no one owes you any favors. But en route, don't try and do it alone. If you want to go fast, yeah, go alone. But if you want to be around for a long while, try and do it with a team of people around you. That's what you've got to do with life. You know, We can't be doing it alone. Um, I hope you don't mind me saying, but you are 68 now. Yeah, 69 this year. And you are in tip-top condition I've, I've seen your uh, your topless pictures on Instagram. <laughs> You're not supposed to be looking. It's 18 plus. How dare you? But um, but you do work out every day. So I was wondering, do you still feel guilty if you miss one day of exercise? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah, I do. I, I do. And, and in particular, as you get older, what happens as you get older, the, the, your muscles, in terms of any work you put it through today, you'll feel the effects tomorrow. So the trick is to do something every day and make it varied. And that way you minimize your aches and pains. But the day I don't do something, and it doesn't have to be much. Right now, if you just sit up straight, orange between your shoulder blades, squeeze the juice out of the orange, your posture has changed. I'm doing it now. Your posture has changed. <laughs> if you squeeze your thighs together and your knees together and your feet together and squeeze tight, imagine trying to lift up the chair. That's a lift door closing. Close that lift door and hold it 20, 30 seconds. Or if it's a lift door, you're going up to the 19th floor. Keep squeezing. You're working your pelvic floor muscle. So you don't have to do much. You don't have to do much. 
And men need to do the pelvic floor as well. Men tend to think it's for women. No! Men, you do it because as you get older, your prostate's going to start playing up. If you've got more control on your flow from now, guess what? You'll be okay in later life. Wise words. Thank you. Unsurprisingly, my guests have such amazing anecdotes from their lives, which they tell so brilliantly. I love listening to them and I hope you've enjoyed it too, this series. I'll end with three great stories from Go West's Richard Drummy, Sean McGuire and Five, the latter of whom have a very rock and roll story involving a classic 90s toy and Liam Gallagher's sideburns. But before that, I just want to say thank you so much for tuning in this season. As I always say, I know there's lots of podcasts out there. So thank you so much for choosing this one. And huge thanks especially to everyone that supported and donated to the podcast to help keep it going. If you'd like to help too, just go to celebritycatchup.com support and do say hello and give me a follow on social media. Just search for Celebrity Catch Up and you'll find me. I'll be back in a few weeks with season four, but in the meantime, why not go back and listen to some of the episodes you may have missed? And until next time, thanks for listening. You mentioned the King of Wishful Thinking there, which um, which gave you a second bite of the cherry, as it were, when it was used in the film Pretty Woman in 1990, um, and then went on to become one of the most played songs on American radio. But I want to talk about the video for a second, because you threw everything, like literally the kitchen sink, into that video. No, well, that's why that's why that happened. I mean, uh, Paul Flattery, it was Flattery Ukage, uh, uh, FYI, they called the company that did it. They did all of the Genesis videos and Phil Collins stuff, and we were lucky enough to get hooked up with them. And, you know, sometimes you do these videos and you, and you know how much it's costing. You go, well, where's 60 grand gone here? I mean, you know, I can't see where the money's gone other than in the director's pocket. But but with, with, with FYI, they had so much going on. I just went, how are they going to do this within the budget? And I actually said to Paul, I said, uh, and to Jim Yukich, I said, man, I said, this is brilliant. I said, you guys have got everything but the kitchen sink in this. And then like later in the day, they said, oh, we've just got one more shot to do that wasn't storyboarded. And then all these kitchen sinks came out of the sky and it was so funny. <laughs> you know, they're such brilliant guys, such brilliant guys. Were you actually in the same room as the elephant or was that spliced enough? Yeah, no, there were no, this is before all of that, you know, clever stuff. I mean, everything was, you know, uh, was as it was, you know, I, I, as filmed and I didn't I don't think I I know it's going to sound difficult to believe but you are concentrating on what you do and I think they were looking for a reaction and I do remember somebody kind of signaling for me to turn around while I was playing and I saw this elephant coming towards me and you see me look back at the camera and go oh my god um but the best thing we've had recently which is just these things that just happen that keep the band you know, a float and I'll keep or, or keep your name out there is that uh, Jimmy Fallon and Paul Rudd did a- Yes, I was going to ask you about that if you'd seen it. Oh, man. Well, you go ahead and ask me about it. Then the audience will know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yes. So Jimmy Fallon and Paul Rudd made a shot for shot remake of the King of Wishful Thinking video, complete with your what I can only describe as dad dancing at the start, which is brilliant. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, well, that, I tell you what that was. That was, they said, you know, there was so much to be filmed in that video that day. And, and they said, well, get in a limo. Limo's going to pull up. The Julia Roberts uh, lookalike is, is, is going to open the door. Then you come out, hand the mic to Pete, and he'll start to sing. And I said, okay, great. I didn't think anything more of it. But then as I got out of the car, I thought, well, I'm going to give him the microphone now. Then what am I going to do? And so that that dance, if anybody ever sees that video again, that was 
not planned. I mean, I, I'm not pretending for one minute it was should win a choreography award, but it was just me going. I was just messing around. In fact, I thought they were going to stop the shot and say, "Don't do that, Richard. <laughs> Don't do that. You're just taking the, the attention off of the singer." which is exactly what I was trying to do. <laughs> oh, it's brilliant. Go and watch it immediately now, everyone, on YouTube, and you'll see it. I defy anyone not to chuckle when you watch it. <laughs> no, but I will say this. if you There is a somewhere, if you look hard in well, I don't think you have to look that hard. Uh, I mean, I don't know if people know who Jimmy Fallon is. I mean, I suppose the closest to him over here is Graham Norton or something like that. But he's on the sh- He's like, you know, the late night, the late night TV host. The Tonight Show. Yeah. And, and for Jimmy Fallon to, uh, and it took them two days to make that video. It took, it took them an extra day compared to us. And they have had to sit there. They, they must have watched the video countless times. I mean, Paul Rudd is playing Pete in it. And the, the, I always call that dance Pete does, the ice skater. He got the ice skater down to a T and, and Jimmy Fallon as well. It's, I actually contacted Jimmy afterwards, and I'm not that he's my mate or anything, but just to say thank you, guys. It was, and he said, oh, no, it's a real pleasure. We love the song, you know. So um, and it's those kind of things that just – we had no idea it was going to happen. It had already happened before we knew. It's just people phoning me from the States the next day saying, you guys were on the Jimmy Fallon last night with Paul Rudd. How, how, how long have you known about that? I said, well, about a minute now since you told me. So there you go. I guess with a career spanning 40 years, it's probably unsurprising, but you've worked with everyone. I have been really lucky to work with some great ones. The first thing that springs to mind is a picture you posted on Instagram a few years ago, and you're on stage with Tom Hanks, Robin Williams, Billy Crystal, Christina Applegate, William Shatner, Martin Sheen. It's like a who's who of acting. Was that was that a Shakespeare reading? It was, yeah. Tom and Rita do this. Sorry, Tom and Rita, like they're my best mates. Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson, who are the nicest people in the world. Um, I met Tom through Martin Short. Martin Short and I had made a movie together and Martin and, and Tom are very good friends. And Marty phoned me and said, would you like to do that? They do the Shakespeare thing. Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson do the Shakespeare thing. I was like, yes, yes, I do. Yes, I will. Please let me do it. And that was before he told me who else was involved. And so when I got there, I was like, oh my God, it was like the most famous people in the world. Like people that I loved, people that I admired. Um, and, and the weird thing was, because I'm, I think I was the only person in the room with an English accent. I had these actors, these superstars going, is this how you say that? And, they, and I'm like, I don't know, I can barely read. Um, but I would just, yeah, yes, no, that, that sounds right, Tom. Yes, absolutely. Yes, that's how we do it in, in Shakespearean land. Um, but I had an amazing, amazing time and they were very, very nice to me. And then they asked me to come back for seven years in a row or eight years in a row. We did it and every year it was a different cast, you know, and then it was uh, one year we were doing Twelfth Night, I think it was, and Anthony Hopkins was there. And I, I, this was before sat nav and before smartphones and I'm terrible with directions and I got lost. We checked, we moved to a different theater. We moved to, from the Geffen to the UCLA and I got lost. And I was like, and I, it's the only time I've, I think I had a panic attack. I was like, don't mind just sitting around the table and I'm not there. And I got there and there was one seat empty. There's all these superstars sitting around doing a table read. They've already started, which adds to my panic. And I'm trying not to hyperventilate. And there's one chair empty between Tom Hanks and Anthony Hopkins. And I'm like, oh, sweet Jesus. So I go, I sit down. I'm like, I'm so sorry, Tom. I'm so sorry. I got lost. And I look at Anthony Hopkins, who is one of my absolute idols. He's like an absolute God to me. And I just, I'm so sorry. And he went, it's all right. You're here now. 
just relax and put his hand on my back. And I was like, I'm being touched by God. I'm actually <laughs> being touched by God right now. And he was the, just the nicest, kindest, most wonderful, benevolent, sweet man and uh, gave me his home phone number and said, if you ever want to run lines, and I'm like, sure. And then rings to Anthony Hopkins and go, will you just run this sitcom scene with me, Sir Tony, you know? Just before we finish up, please tell me the story about the time you were in a hotel room with Liam Gallagher in Brazil, because it's not quite the type of rock and roll behaviour you'd expect. Oh, mate, it's the best. That's one of the best stories ever. And it's true. So we are getting, we're in Rio in Brazil and we are getting drunk with um, Liam Gallagher. And um, he's an hilarious guy. He was such a nice guy. We got on really well. Noel didn't really want to know, but Liam, Liam was going for a few beers. And um, from absolutely nowhere, he pulls out from his bag a bop it, bop it, twist it, pull it. And, and I'm thinking, why has Liam Gallagher got a bop it on tour? This is, this is not rock and roll. And we're playing bop it in his room. And we're all very drunk. And he's very, very, um, very into this game. And then Sean goes up to Liam Gallagher and goes to him, mate, your sideburns need trimming. <laughs> Sean points directly on Liam Gallagher's face to where Sean believes his sideburns should end. <laughs> and I'm standing there thinking, oh, my God, please don't touch Liam Gallagher's face, Sean. Please don't touch his face. Please don't touch his face. And he's literally going, right there, man, right there, right there. And Liam Gallagher's going, ah, get on. And they start having this argument. Oh no, it was going so well. This is going to end badly. Then Sean disappears to go and get us some drinks. They have a hug. It's no problem. <laughs> and then we're on the balcony and Liam Gallagher is playing one of the albums that's not out yet. Uh, I think it was the second album. We might have been like definitely maybe or something like that. I can't remember. Anyway, he's playing the album and every song that he wrote, he says, oh, this one's fucking legendary. Absolutely fucking legendary. And everyone that Noel wrote, he says, this one's shite, <laughs> shite. And then the last bit of the story is from absolutely nowhere, Sean's now downstairs getting us around of drinks and he's shouting up to Liam Gallagher, you still need your sideburns trimmed, Liam? <laughs> and I'm thinking, please stop, please stop. But it goes down as, as one of my funniest ever memories. <laughs> 